What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Demand Gen Live. I am actually getting, I have to get reused to this setup because I'm used to looking at the, the uh, everyone on the screen up there. Um, but we're back for Demand Gen Live. It's Tuesday night. Great to have all of you here. Um, we're going to do mostly an AMA today. I'm broadcasting from Boston, which is cool. I love being back in Boston. So I'm here for at least the week. So if anyone's around, feel free. Got a couple of nights that I could meet up with some people. If there's anyone listening to the podcast that wants to meet up. Um, and I also want to say thank you. I'm getting uh, quite a few notes and things like that from people about, hey, like I saw, I got this insight from you a while ago. We've been implementing it for a while. We've gotten this result back. So I've been getting a lot of interesting feedback from CMOs and directors of dimensions and even some sales leaders recently. And my company is going to continue to do this. We're going to continue to see the market from a different viewpoint than anyone else because we actually execute these strategies on 55 companies simultaneously right now. We have the Salesforce CRM data. We have where the budget's being allocated, what technology is being used, what the marketing team looks like, how the funnel metrics look. We have a different view on the market than a lot of other people, which allows us to innovate way faster. That's why you and people that come here and get the insights and, and do that. And that's why people that use the advice that we take about self-reported attribution, custom conversions, our pipe go-to-market framework, how we think about creative and telling the story in the feed. There's been rapid levels of innovation for my company over the past three years simply because of the point of view that we have and the scale in, in which we operate. And so I'm looking forward to continuing to deliver that. That's going to be the future of how uh, Refine Labs continues to move. And I want to take up one last announcement because we've been talking about this for a while. I've been talking about the pipe go-to-market framework. We've been talking about Hero Pipeline and things like that. And as of this week, we are beginning to roll this out at Refine Labs customers inside of the CRM. That means that they're going to have, I'm sure people have done this before because I've done this before as a marketer. You ever tried something that you logically thought was going to work? Like we got to run, we have to do LinkedIn or we have to do a podcast or we have to do Facebook ads a little while ago or anything. And you're like, this is going to work. And then you do it for a little while and you're like, this feels like it's working, but I can't prove it. Raise your hand. People have had something like that happen to them as a marketer. Got some hands in there. The, yeah, we got the, Lindsay. Thanks for raising your hand there. It's because the way that you measure marketing is not set up to effectively measure those things, right? And so what we're providing with the pipe grow to market framework is a new way to measure marketing, a new way to measure marketing that tightly aligns marketing with sales based on sales performance metrics, sales cycle length, win rates, KPIs like that, total revenue generated, total pipeline generated, those metrics, along with a new way to think about attribution that's going to help you measure channels like LinkedIn ads, like a podcast, like employee advocacy on social, like a lot of the community, a lot of the things that we do at Refine Labs. Because we do it on ourselves, we figured out how to measure it effectively. And so we're rolling that out to customers. So if you are a Refine Labs customer and you're on here or you're listening to this, feel free to uh, reach out to your team that you're working with, and we'll get that scheduled to get set up. And if you're not a Refine Labs customer and you're interested in learning more, feel free to uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn or at our website. And with all of that, with all that said, I'd love to uh, maybe just bounce into some AMA. Let's do it. We have one of our favorites, Perry. He's got a new project coming up and he wants to get your take. Um, and I got a couple of questions from YouTube and from someone driving that I'll get to right after. But 
Perry, welcome to the show. Excited to have you on for our first question tonight. I am excited too. Got a lot of endorphins. Just got done with a, a dog walk. So a lot nice, of dog, dog yeah. walkers here. <laughs> Feels weird. I'm putting, um, I got eaten up by mosquitoes yesterday. So it's all gross and nasty with the deet on my skin. Oh, man. Anyway, so I... Um, besides the bug bites, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, so I... um We talked probably a month or two ago, and I launched my own AMA-style thing, which is going really well. And I am launching it for another company within the, the eye care industry. And basically, I am splitting the show between two different vendors just had to do with uh, funds, really. They want to combine their their funds. They're both collaborative and refer each other people business. So I thought that would be a good thing. Just to describe the products. One is the okra product that we talked about a long time ago. Well, the like drops, a month ago. Yeah. Yep. And yeah. then the other one's a nutraceutical. And I've been on, traditionally, these are trade show type organizations. They go set up their booth. I've talked to the leadership of both companies and they both stopped trade shows, which I was like, okay, we're on to the right path here. And so they're agreeing to do this talk show concept. We're going to do it every other week. And some of it will just be AMA like this. Other times we're going to be clinically in a, in a practice, a medical practice. We're going to be demonstrating technology, consumer experiences, sales pitches, all sorts of technical things even. Okay. And I've been on their socials. There is no social. Their, their form of social is let's send something to graphics department. And then let's post it on Instagram. And yep. so I'm just trying to think, how do I set realistic expectations? What's going to come out of this? I don't want them calling all the registrants of the talk show and selling them shit. So what are, what are your steps and guidance here? You got to fix the mindset. And I haven't got there yet. So, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's tough to implement something and think that you're going to have success with it when you don't have the right mindset going into it or the people that you're doing it with don't have the right mindset right that's the answer if the if you think that the people are going to call people that sh signed up for your talk show to sell them stuff like that's a clear no one's going to come back to your event right i've asked this question before people get this like how would you all feel if we cold called you three five last people cold called you after you showed up to this Eventually, maybe you'd come back twice if we were lucky, but you wouldn't keep coming back. It's just the way that it works. And I don't think they I don't think they are going to do that. I've already told them that's not the yeah. purpose. The purpose is you've been doing things that are not working. So let's try something new. That's why they gravitated yep. towards the concept that you have here. But what would you be your so first step? Mind, so fix the mindset first about what we're actually trying to do in parallel to that measure what has been happening historically. What are the historical results? like past four to six fiscal quarters. And so you have, what I would be looking for is how much pipeline did we create through the website every quarter in the past six quarters? How much revenue did we close total as a company and specifically through the website? And then you'd have your baseline, right? And then you're just trying to move the baseline forward over a period of time so that you have the metrics set up with the baseline so you can say, you know, we used to create 500K a quarter in pipeline and now we're doing 750 did you realize that's a 50% increase, right? So like percentage increase is a big thing here. And then setting up self-reported attribution will allow you to say, oh, the people that are actually filling out the forms and actually converting to pipeline are the people that came to our events or the people that heard about us through word of mouth, the people that are in our community. 
right? That's like, this is essentially like what we're setting up for software, like large scale software companies in a much more automated, integrated way within their CRM and marketing automation platforms to show them the exact same stuff or to provide them with the data that helps them show their executive team and their board the exact same stuff that you're looking to show on a more micro level. So those would be a couple of the recommendations, but it comes down to mindset and measurement. Okay. Yeah. And I guess we haven't got, you know, I'm not trying to be their full scale blown agency. I'm just trying yeah. to, you know, fix one little thing in the, in their organization to get some buzz. And they realize that, you know, I'm not their agency. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be in their HubSpot account and all that crap. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I, I yeah. think that definitely helps. And it's, it's just interesting to see there's very successful companies, you know, so it's just tough for them to very fathom companies that, that do what we're talking about. Successful in the fact that they've been around 30 years and they're persisting. Mm. The current, yeah. The, the companies that we're talking about that you're working with, right? Yeah. They're successful. They've been around for 30 years. They're probably in a mature category. Growth is slowing or declining and they got to figure yes. out what they're, they're not innovating on the product. They're not innovating on marketing. Their sales channel is still like it was in 1999 or 2008. And they're just not moving. They're not going anywhere because they're not innovating, right? And it's like, it's biz, It's the executive team is trying to do this is not bought into this, which is a clear indicator to me of why I knew all those other symptoms and things like that is because if you were a business leader and you were in tune with the market, you'd be doing all these things already. It's obvious your customers are doing it. It's just obvious, you know? And so if they're not doing that on the marketing side, it's clear they're not doing it on the product side, the go-to-market. How do you think when I when I go out to the public, I'm, I'm going to be developing a lot of content, repurposing it for them. You know, they have their B2C and B2B. How do I develop that B2B content without sharing too much and showing the consumers these back-end things that are happening inside the industry, which they probably don't want to air their their dirty laundry? The only thing that matters is the end customer. In my opinion, I think that like it's a distribution model, right? Your B2B is really a reseller distrib- distributor model. Reseller distrib yeah, correct. Yeah, so the only thing that matters is the end customer. The end if the end customer buys, like I'd be questioning whether or not you even does it need to be a prescription? No, no, it's just yeah, all so I'd be questioning whether or not you even need the B2B. I think it just makes it more complicated in my opinion. I think we talked about that last time. <laughs> we did. We did. You said, you said go D to C, go to D to C. And I'm like, yeah, whoever, yeah we can. Whoever is closest to the customer wins. Whoever controls the customer experience wins. Whoever is more vertically integrated across the entire value chain are the companies that win. And so being a manufacturer that intentionally puts a company between you and your, your target customer, it just is not smart. And in 1990, it was smart because you couldn't afford to put feet on the street because there wasn't the internet because these things didn't exist. But in today's world in 2022, it's literally just not smart. Everyone should be going direct to the customer. Yeah. And they are, and I don't know what regards I, you know, I'm getting their Facebook retarding right now and who knows how well that's working, but you know, I got to start somewhere with them and I'm probably, I just feel good about this. So yeah, I, I mean, think you're, you're, you're certainly moving in the right direction. Just, setting expectations with you. If you don't want to be their full-blown agency and you just want to come in and have some miracles happen, I think it might be a little bit more work than you expect. Right, right. But, um, I've made that very clear. We're actually doing a six-week, uh, no, not a six-week. We're doing a six-episode pilot. So two and a half months. I'm like, guys, let's. I don't want to get into a year contract or some other bullshit where I'm forced to do it and I hate it. 
was like, let's just go at a small dose. If you like what's happening, good. If you don't, we'll move on. We'll look at these qualitative metrics. Do we get some DMs? Do we get some hoorahs and thumbs up? And we'll call that a success and figure out what's next. Cool. I love it. Yeah. Come back and let us know. Keep keep us coming. I like following the story because it's sort of uh, the this like whether it's regulated or unregulated, like medical products and medical devices, I think are super interesting because yeah. the, the leaders of these companies just simply do not innovate. Yeah. And I'm going to throw one other thing out here because I think other people may get value from it if they're in the medical industry. The uh, you know doctors are doing CE, continuing education, which is required to maintain their certification of their degrees. But certific- continuing ed during the pandemic went all online. Now, online means put on a Zoom call, walk away and go play with the kids and come back. And you don't have to like take a test or anything. So what happened when all these doctors are taking online education, but they're not actually listening to the sales pitches. And so we said, screw the education. And we're not going to do that. We, we want to invite the 59 people like this that are here to learn without having to sign off that I got my credit. That's 100% correct. The idea that you need to dangle this carrot in front of a customer that says, hey, come listen to our pitch. We'll give you a CE credit. Hey, come listen to our pitch. We'll give you a $50 gift card. You got to have something stronger so that you pull people to you, you know? So I I like the direction on that. Yeah, it's crazy in in the world. So they should make these doctors take a test, but the doctors would revolt. Thanks right, for thank coming you. on. Cool. Thanks for coming on, Perry. Yeah, Perry. Always good to see you. Um, I'm going to sneak in one quick question before I bring on Brenly live, but this is coming from Raz, who is watching the YouTube live stream right now. We were kind of just talking about events. And so he said, what are some of your top best practices for putting on a successful webinar? Whew. I mean, we do them a lot. And I guess if you consider what we're doing right now, a webinar, the things that I would say are have people that have deep expertise doing it, have a clear point of view that attracts people, do it on a consistent basis. The people that want to keep coming, keep coming, recognize that the most important part of the event is actually the digital asynchronous distribution after the event, not the actual event. Most, I would say 90, maybe 95% of the value to your business comes post-event distributing content because most people want to consume content asynchronously on their own time. The Q&A format, I love. It allows the audience to tell you exactly what they want to know. It's also a great form of market research. To vary the times, we do one of these at 7.30 p.m. on Tuesdays. We do another one at 12 p.m. on Thursdays. Other parts of the company do some on Wednesdays. So to vary the times and try and figure out what is the right time for this. And to generally just not go into it with the idea that I want trying to sell to these people, which is what almost every B2B company does. And if they even if they tell, say to themselves, I'm not selling to the people, they are. So I think those are... I think six core things that could make a your webinar success, more successful. That was perfect. Hope that was helpful, Raz. All right, going back to bring some bring someone on live. Brenly, more of a career focused question. Welcome to the show, Brenly. Hey, thanks so much. Good um, to have you here. Yeah, appreciate it. Second time on the live, but listening to the podcast format for uh, maybe like six months or so. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, helping what you got. 
yeah, so I've been in demand gen maybe about a year now. So the last 12 months have been super fast for my career. So I'm 24 mm-hmm. years old and I was always in, you know, B2C in the automotive industry for a while. Then that transitioned me to the B2B side in automotive and as d- for demand gen, I was only there for about nine months and then I was plucked out and where I'm at now. So this time last year, the B2C job, I was making uh, about 50, 55K a year. And now I've doubled that in a matter of 12 months coming to B2B uh, demand gen. So, mm-hmm. you know, as I'm 24, my question for you is what advice would you give to your 24 year old self just for like my career growth? Cause I know like your early career is gonna kind of help shape the trajectory of its entirety. So what kind of advice that you have for any like young people in demand gen? I know I've heard you say like not prioritizing income that kind of just fell into me, but it's like yeah, what yeah. kind of companies, what kind of, should I be trying to you know move up if opportunity allows me to, or yeah, that's the situation. Yeah, I love it. Um, first off, just want to point out to people, I'm, I imagine that there are people that either stumble upon this podcast and are in B2C or just listen to it and are in B2C. And damn, I figured out this for myself too. Like a lot of B2B companies, you can make doing pretty similar job, but focused on B2B selling expensive things to companies. You can make quite a bit more money than in B2B or in, in, sorry, in B2C. So just wanted to note that for people as I saw that as well. Question for you. What do you, what do you want to have? Like you're, you may not know, but as best you can, like, what do you want to have happen? I think for me, I would love to yeah, eventually kind of lead like a whole mark, even up to like a, a VP of marketing one day. So like leading a team, uh, I love like early stage startup seems to be like a really fun environment. So even just taking an early stage series A startup and then kind of taking it, taking it the ways leading the entire marketing. So that's the goal. Cool. Yeah. Um, I like the goal. I will also note that I talked to a lot of Series A VPs of marketing, and many of them hate their job. But <laughs> Good to know. Uh, just because the the expectations, the lack of understanding at the executive level about what marketing is, the pro- the stage of the company and product market fit, there's just a lot of factors there that make that a sort of a challenging job. But that's beside the point. But I asked where you want to go to because it was about 25 for me that I was like, I I don't want to work for someone else forever, but I know that I can't do that right now. But at some point, I want to start my own business. So that was my goal, right? And so in my head, my goal was like, I'm going to build a product company when I'm 35. That was what I said to myself when I was 25. And then all of the things that I started to do started to map to that outcome. So I started to get involved and like I was already in product development because I worked at product product management at that point, but then started to take finance a lot more seriously. Finance course, which we recommend to any marketer or business person, like business acumen and finance is super important. I started my second e-commerce company on the side when I was 25. So I'm like, again, trying to build a muscle about like, how, what is it like to run a full company and focus on everything, not just on marketing? I eventually changed roles to get into a industry and more of like a, I, I basically went from like big holdings companies, pump to grow profit 10% every year for billions of dollars of organizations, right? So 10% is a pretty big deal. 
to companies that are trying to grow at 80 plus percent every year. I made that change because I I needed that environment, right? So I'll just talk through what I'm doing and you can sort of interpret that, but changing to the right industry or the right company type is really interesting and a, a really big one. And then at your where you are in your career, I think the number one thing that you need to think about is what is the right vehicle for me to get to where I want to go, which is like, what is the right company, leadership, market, industry, product, like all those different things. And so evaluating that and being like, this is where I want to go. And then if you're in the right place, you can just grow in there for a really long time. Another thing that I'll say is I think that people, and I faced this until I was about 27, 28 years old, people just lack patience. You can't just jump jobs every six to nine months and get a salary bump and expect to eventually have any level of knowledge or a body of work because it takes time to actually develop a body of work anywhere. Right. So I think that that having the right level of patience and patience doesn't mean that I'm just going to sit here and like never get anywhere. Right. Patience is, is different than complacency. So, yeah, I'll pause there and sort of see where you're at. So it's very similar to me to when you said you started your own company. I've been entrepreneur for a while and even outside of nine to five, I've been kind of doing it's kind of like freelance kind of things mm -hmm. even to this day with a couple of law firms, a couple of realtors. My main job's in the real estate space. So I've been doing that on the side and it's one of those, maybe it's one of those big, looking at the big um, beast of starting a company and it's like, all right, what's the path? And so maybe, you know, and, and you've done that. So mm -hmm. um, to get there, is that exactly what I want? And so there's like a comfortability piece of like, oh, I like working for the companies with 401k matches and health insurance figured out and all this other stuff. Like, do I really want to go out and tackle doing my own thing? But then also the experience play in that. Mm -hmm. When do you start to do your own thing? I think you can do both No, Yeah. Like I did, I did both for a, a, quite a while. So it allows you to focus on the learning, but not have to like give up the health insurance and the paycheck and things like that. Because frankly, like if I did that at 25, I don't know for sure, but I probably wouldn't have been successful. I just, I didn't think that I was ready. But the thing is that you're never going to think that you're ready. When I started my company, I basically got pushed into it. You know what I mean? Like I wasn't like, I'm out of here. I'm going to start this company we're going to grow so fast and do this. Like it was, that was not the plan. I started just as like, I need, I need to get some customers so I can pay my bills. You know what I mean? And things just evolve from there. So you're never going to feel like you're ready, but I got to say that there's nothing like not having a paycheck or a safety net that creates such a level of innovation. We will. Yeah. It's just like, it's really interesting how when you don't have that, those options, what you do. So let me try and like round this out for you. I think that the number one is focusing on where are we going and then what are the skills and experience that I want? Like from the beginning, for me, it was always that skills and experience are the long-term driver of my career, not my title when I'm 25 and not how much money I make when I'm 30. It's because the, the curve of your professional growth and your income is most likely going to go like slow, 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 woof. You know what I mean? Because at some point you hit a trigger and you 
drive significantly more value and you separate from everyone, at least like in a lot of careers, it can go that way. So skills and experience, trying to figure out where am I, like, how do I pick a market or a, some type of space that I know is going to be growing for a long time? And then how do I position myself to be a key player in that space? So that's another sort of idea. And then I think the side, doing something on the side is like a really, a really great way to fill the gaps of learning. So if you can't get certain gaps in the B2B company that you work for to run Instagram ads or to start a podcast or things like that, but you want to learn how to do them, then figure out a way on the side to, to be able to learn those skills too. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate all those tips and, and your insights from uh, where you were when you were 24. Awesome, man. But you're on a, you're on a great track. Keep it going. Yeah. Thanks. Great to have you on Brenly. Another question from YouTube, YouTube active tonight. Mateo asks any advice for stacking your first clients, just kind of a continuation of what you were just talking about when you started refine labs. Mm. For the first couple of clients, I think it's, it's into your network. So who do you know that knows other people or who have you worked with in the past you had good experiences with? And a lot of the time, if you've done right by people early in your career, just the fact that people see that you're now available for work, like you'll get some things about like, hey, do you want to like we had, that's how I got my first three customers were just people that I had worked with or worked for before as an employee or something like that. So that's a great way to get the initial sort of like from zero to something. And then from there, it's all about creating demand, which I think the easiest way right now, if you're like, is to produce thoughts about how your point of view on whatever you're doing in dark social. Awesome. Yep. Yeah, it's perfect. Squeeze in another question from Anna, one of our favorites. She's cooking dinner, cannot come on live. So she wants to get your take on company newsletters. So do you think newsletters should be part of a marketing strategy? You know, she's saying if the purpose is to stay top of mind, there are lots of ways to do that through social without a newsletter, unless you're prioritizing wanting to own and grow your own email list. So she just wants to get your take on company newsletters and how you see that playing into a marketing mix. The first thing to think to acknowledge is that a newsletter is a content distribution strategy. So you could take the exact same content that you're creating and you could distribute it in a newsletter. You could post it on a blog. You could read it on a podcast. You could write it in a LinkedIn post. You know what I mean? There's You could make it into a YouTube video, all with the same message and point of view that then gets distributed in different places. So that's the first the separation between the content and the distribution is really important because there's a lot of companies that just make a newsletter, but they don't have anything interesting to say. And so it's like trying to figure out how do I get the content to work first? And then once I know that it works, how do I add a distribution in email? So if I was doing it from scratch, I would make a live event. I would convert the live event into a podcast. I would post this, the podcast clips on LinkedIn. Once that stuff was working, I would most likely then go to TikTok and then maybe go to a newsletter after that. 
So I'm just talking through the the steps in the, of how I would prioritize because just an email newsletter doesn't hit my top one, two, or three because building the list like is a huge restriction to all of the organic reach and awareness that you can get other places. It's very, very rare. You have to have a very, very good newsletter to get it forwarded to me. I've only had one newsletter forwarded to me in the past 12 months. You have to have a very good newsletter for somebody to share it with somebody else. Way different than the organic reach that gets produced on TikTok or LinkedIn or how people share podcasts. Or how, there's just So I think that you're leaving a lot of upside on the table to be focused on a email channel that's much more difficult from a shareability and reach standpoint than other channels. But if you're able to get the content to really work, converting, like maybe we should do this just to prove it out, like converting my LinkedIn posts or some of the things like segments of this podcast into an email newsletter probably could be pretty simple and probably would work pretty well. But start with the content first and then the, and then prior, like go through the prioritization of distribution. Do I think that it's important? Like, I think that any marketing activity can be important when executed well. What it comes down to is how many resources do you have? How much money do you have? And then how do you prioritize those activities given the amount of resources that you have? And uh, up to this point, like in my business, we just haven't, we've prioritized other things. Good answer. Hope that was helpful, Anna. All right. One of our good friends, Bob. Welcome to the show. I think he saw something you posted on LinkedIn and had a follow-up. Yeah, Chris, Megan, nice to see you guys again. I was curious about a, a comment you made on a post about the difference between dark social and dark funnel. Mm. where uh, Demand is created versus where demand's captured. And you said that the dark funnel refers to intent channels that provide account level intent data trademarked by six cents. And I was curious, you know, I was probably not thinking about dark funnel the right way in terms of I was using it as interchangeably. Well, I was basically yeah. saying people who are talking with each other in the dark social are basically in some level of a funnel for us. And when they come to the website and ask for demo requests, then they're bottom of funnel and now they're visible. Were you advocating or could you better explain your position on it? Were you advocating to use like six cents to go out and try to capture that demand? I just wouldn't think yeah. that you would recommend people go out and try to pull people in, or are you recommending using a tool like that to pull in people from the dark funnel? So I just see people use the term dark social and dark funnel interchangeably, and it's just totally not true, right? And so I'm trying to help people see the differences because it's very different. I can't change the definition of the dark funnel that Sixth Sense made. They decided to make their definition, which is we use in, intent channels that provide account level intent data. So by definition, if you have intent data in intent channels, you're capturing demand, right? Otherwise, there, would, there wouldn't be intent in the first place. So you're capturing demand. And then we have all of this other stuff in dark social that doesn't produce intent data, that doesn't, create, that doesn't get measured by attribution software, where all the demand is created. And we've had like such conversations on this podcast with really smart people like Christopher Lockhead and others that whoever creates the demand wins. So 
I'm not necessarily advocating for buying a tool like Sixth Sense to capture demand. What I'm advocating for is if you understand the differences between these two things, then you realize that they are complementary strategies. And if you only do one, if you're like only going after people that are in 10 channels to capture demand, you're missing out on most of the market. So the distinction here is like all B2B companies and almost all B2B technology to do marketing is focused on capturing demand because it's the only way that they can make an ROI conversation to help you buy the technology, right? That's why it's hard right now for some companies to think about how they're going to work with us right now because they're only focused on measuring captured demand metrics because they're looking at just one dimension of demand. There's three dimensions of demand, creating demand, damming demand, and capturing demand. And so if you're only looking at capturing demand, you're just not effectively running the entire system. And just the, the way that it goes is, I think, I don't know, someone on, at LinkedIn Marketing Institute or wherever that thing is called messaged me and they're trying to get people. It's just weird. I'm getting conflicting messages from them. They're like, we're trying to move the market away from lead gen, but then their entire ad product has reps calling people telling them to run lead gen. So... I'm not sure how I got into that point, but I'd be happy. I'm sure you have a follow up, so I'd love to keep going here. Yeah, I have a second part of it, and it obviously leads into to your strategy. But um, the other thing I see a lot of some marketers posting on LinkedIn is that you know paid ads isn't demand gen, and I kind of get annoyed at it because I feel like the way I'm running the paid ads with all your advice is my demand gen strategy. That's the one thing that I can do, and I feel like it's the intent of the ad in that channel to educate using paid ads is the distribution. It's not the strategy. It's how you're using the ads as the strategy that makes it demand gen versus lead gen. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious to get your take on it. I mean, granted, again, I'm just doing two, I'm probably just doing the two parts, which is I'm creating the ads to educate and then I'm capturing the demand when they come to the website. And that's yep. really the, I'm just doing two very small components of your overall strategy, of course, but mm -hmm. could you expand on that? Like, like what's your yeah. belief system there? The confusion is that the market doesn't know what demand gen means. And so like, I'm probably going to take some homework and we're going to change the name of this podcast by, by this time next week, because demand gen is just a misunderstood term. For some people, it means like 200 calls a day, outbound cold calling, ding, 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 just annoy people. Other people, it means high volume paid social or Google ads to just get as many MQLs as possible. It just like is, it's, terribly it's content syndication for some people it's just terribly defined and so what it should be looked at is not demand gen anymore it should be looked at at the three dimensions of demand are you creating demand are you capturing demand or are you damning demand and so what you're doing is you're creating demand and what everyone else does is capture demand so it's a it, to me it's a better distinction than demand gen and lead gen which i'm aware i'm the one who made that distinction between demand gen and lead gen but the fact of the matter is that most people don't understand what demand gen is and what i meant at that point was create demand what you're doing is creating demand and what and it's it's the the the, per, the perception of the market is the issue here right you're doing everything right but when people think paid ads, they think I got to run lead gen forms. I got to get $50 CPL. I got to pass those, you know, I got to get a bunch of MQLs for my SDR team. So it's their thinking is outdated, not your execution.
No, okay, perfect. And um, by uh, tomorrow morning, everybody's going to change their LinkedIn titles to demand creator. So, <laughs> I'll, I'll see you there with the new LinkedIn. Title. Cool. Yeah, we'll see where it ends up. But now I guess okay. I'm on the hook to think about that. Appreciate the insight. Thanks, Chris. The state of demand creation. I don't know. Probably I don't not. Know. I don't like the ring to it. No. <laughs> so lots of people that are multitasking tonight. So I'm going to ask this next question on behalf of Matt Banker. What demand gen tactics would you prioritize for smaller companies? I'm talking about a service-based company like an accounting firm, 3 million ARR, 150K annual marketing budget, uh, looks like 15K ACV. Would your ideas work at that scale? What would you do or not do in this context? It did work at that scale, right? <laughs> like, in order to get to where we are, we at one point needed to be a $3 million service company to get to where we are now. So, yes, it definitely would work for you. The question is down to a couple of core things. Do the executives at your company prioritize this? And are they willing to put somebody that is a true expert that has a unique point of view on the market in a position to do the exact same thing that we're doing right here? You should copy this verbatim with either your CFO or somebody else on your finance team to do this exact thing. So that's one. The second thing is, are the executives at your company conscious of having a clear strategy? Who are the target customers? What product are we actually selling? Why is it differentiated against other options? Most accounting firms don't have that piece. And so like, yeah, you can still run this event and you can still get customers, but it's not going to resonate as much because it's more like commodity information. You need to figure out what are the non-obvious insights in the market about this? How do I connect that into dots that help people be more successful than they would have without us, which is what we do on this event? So we use, you know, for you, use your $3 million service-based business with that 15 ACV customers. Like, I don't know, you got 15 to 20 customers. I'm doing the math in my head. Anyway, you got like a, you got a pretty significant amount of customers. Then what experience do you get working with 20 companies at once that an individual company wouldn't have? How do you convert that experience into something that matters? And then how do you talk about that experience using an expert on an event like this? Like it would 100% work. The question is just whether or not you're, that you can execute the strategy. Oh, he dropped a follow-up in the chat. Cool. Would you put money towards guaranteed distribution or to pay for a production team? Mm, I wouldn't pay for a production team at the beginning. The information, the quality of the information matters more than the production quality. If you go back and look at our first Zooms, like, gosh, it just was, it just, the quality doesn't matter that much at the beginning. So no, I would not pay for a production team. I would listen to a couple of the State of Dimension podcast episodes that break down for 30 or 45 minutes, how to build a content strategy, like exactly what we do. And then I would just do that and bypass the production team. Yep. So you could use a company like Hatch, which costs like 500 bucks a month to edit your podcast. Like those, just some little hacks on that side to get some of that stuff out. Or you could hire like one videographer creative. Like, so there's options there, but I wouldn't get it with a 150K a year budget. I wouldn't be spending some on a production team. 
And would you put money towards guaranteed distribution? Me personally, I would not put money toward guaranteed distribution until I've proven that the content resonates with people. And then if you want to pay to accelerate the process of more people getting aware of you through that, then you can. Um, we've started to do that. We run, I don't know, somewhere between 5 and 10K in media now to a set of target accounts using content that we already know works because it got 1,550,000 impressions on LinkedIn last week. But so there's a way to leverage organic to prove that it's going to work and then amplify it with paid that I would take. But you're probably at least six months away from that. We got one more follow up here. I think the hard part is what you mentioned, getting a subject matter expert that has a clear point of view and interesting enough things to say. You are correct. That is the most difficult part of this, which is why almost no companies can actually do it. So crazy. And I've said this a couple of times, but I just want to like hammer this home like. The person that does what I'm doing in your company is as important as your CTO, is as important as your CFO. Call it a chief evangelist, call it a subject matter expert, call it whatever you want. But this needs to be the person that runs the content, that like leads the community, that has all the customer insights, that creates the unique point of view and drives the company forward. Ideally, that informs the product roadmap. Like, this person is as important as other C-level executives in your business. It's just that you're looking at the world when it was 2014, when this wasn't important versus what it is now. But yes, I totally agree. The hardest part is definitely getting, is having the point of view and then having the person that communicates it. Awesome. Hope that was helpful, Matt. Have another business owner that has some questions, an interesting theme tonight. So I'll jump to this one. Also cooking dinner, Manny. So he is launching a new growth agency tomorrow. And he wanted to get your take or your advice on how far he should be thinking about extending his services for demand gen. He wants to focus on strategy primarily, and he's unsure where he should help with implementation. He's specifically asking, how does Refine Labs handle this? Mm. I mean, if you're going to launch it tomorrow, you, by definition, you haven't started yet. Like, I don't think I'm in a position to tell you what you should and shouldn't do. This is a process of experimentation. Like, you should have a sense about who the target customer is or who they could be. You should have a sense about what I might be offering. I'd actually recommend that you do open scope and charge either like probably hourly or on some type of recurring retainer, which creates flexibility for you to do whatever you think is best to get the customer to be more successful. So you don't have to worry about drawing inside of the lines of a certain scope at the beginning. So you can do a bunch of stuff. I did this when I started, I charged a hundred, some couple of people got a deal in May, 2019, when I didn't know what I was doing, I charged a hundred bucks an hour out the gate and people got a deal on that. But when I did it, like that means for some companies that I had a $5,000 retainer with, I had 50 hours of work that I did for them. I put together their content strategy. I fixed their HubSpot. I helped them do the messaging on their website. I ran the Facebook ads. I contracted the creatives. I did all of the things so that I could figure out which parts are very valuable, which ones do companies want to, would prefer to do it on their own, which things are commodity level work that I don't want to touch. 
are these the right customers for me, right? And so as you get the reps, you figure out who are the customers that are willing to pay? Where am I driving significant value? And what you're actually looking for is where is there a, where is there a gap in the market? So to me, the insight that I'm working off currently is the gap in the market is that there's no firm in the entire B2B space that's moving forward to the science of demand. Nobody's looking at, do we need new frameworks? Do we need to challenge the technology that we use? Do we need to think about the metrics that we use differently? How should we standardize them? There's just like, there's no companies thinking about that stuff except for technology platforms that use it inside of their own tech. So using that experimentation would help you figure out where the gap is. My personal, I mean, you can make money as a consultant giving advice and then not having to do anything. And you can make money just taking orders and executing stuff. The real value is when you do both. And you just got to figure out what are the things that I should execute on versus what are the things that don't. But like the in demand, like it breaks down in both places. It breaks down because people are don't know what to do and they don't know how to do it. So like both the strategy and the execution matter a lot. And if you're like the consultant giving advice and you're like, okay, do these things and leave the execution up to somebody else and they bring in the wrong mindset or they take the wrong metrics or they whatever, and it doesn't work, then people might think that you didn't work. At this point, I think there's a hybrid of strategy and execution that's necessary for a firm like that. So Manny, who just asked the question over chat, is done cooking dinner and he's on live to ask a follow-up. Yeah, what's up, Manny? <laughs> what you cooking? Basic. Chicken and rice. <laughs> so I right, get those gains. Um, Chris, so great points you just made about it's gonna be that hybrid approach. So I come from a DTC background. So I'm on an e-commerce brand, we sell clothing online. And then I landed this opportunity to work with the sales and marketing team for this payroll company. They're about 30 to 50 people in size right now. And they're heavily on cold calling, trade shows like you said, 2014 mindset, right? So I came in and their problem last year was they hired a paid ad agency, right? The paid ad agency technically did their job. They bought them the traffic, but the traffic didn't stay under page, right? It bounced. So when I first came in, I wanted to rebrand the brand identity across the omni-channel, fix the customer journey for them, make a new website. That was phase one, launch the website. Now it's okay, how do we create this demand? Right. And I came across your podcast like three months ago and we started talking about dark social, start talking about a lot of these terms that make sense because this is how I buy. When I want to buy from my e-commerce or software from my Shopify, I'm going to go on a webinar. They have three other companies in that webinar. Oh, look at that. Now I want to buy for them too. So that's the type of strategy I want to implement for them. The two things, right? Webinars with other parallel companies who have parallel services to you and to the podcast. Right. But leadership ceo he's on board the team is not however it's getting very hard to even get them to buy the podcast equipment at this point like i've given playbooks maturity models best practices i've sent them a link to one of your podcasts and like, guys listen 30 minutes to chris talk right and i'm sure i wonder the best way to do this like right now i'm trying to go behind not sorry not behind their back but i'm trying to work with the vp of sales like hey let's just set it up ourselves let's just show them let's make 15 tiktoks right repurpose it across linkedin show your knowledge and then we'll bring it to them but it's like how do i get this old school mindset payroll company to start 
doing this when there's one marketing coordinator, by the way, right? And only one head of sales. He doesn't have any SDRs underneath him. And yeah, what's your take on that? Yeah. There was like six questions in there. So I'm trying to form form my thoughts. (laughs) You know why? The first thought, just coming picking out of what you did, like the company hires a a paid ads agency, and companies just run through this cycle all the time, and they don't realize that like it's because they're trying to hit a screwdriver in with a hammer, or they're trying to screw a screwdriver in with a hammer, or something like that. Like they think that they need more people to run ads, but they what they really need is better insights to drive better decisions. Right. Like it's exactly what you're trying, it's what you're trying to help them with. Right. Like the ads agency is not the solution here. So that's one thing. How do I get them? How do you get them to do this? You got a couple options. Like when I was in this company in 2017, and literally nobody in the company believed that a podcast and Facebook ads and, you know, buying a tool like HubSpot was even worth it in this medical device company. They're like, this is definitely not going to work. We're going to keep like, stop doing this, Chris. You should be out in the field with the sales team. Is really what people told me. I was like, fuck you. <laughs> How do you get them to think differently? You got you either take massive action and you prove that this is how it this is how it works and this is how it's going to go until they see it. But you you can't convince someone that doesn't want to be convinced about something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I I ran into this a lot, like. The solution for me was choosing a different customer. And it, was, it wasn't necessarily like an individual, like I'm going to switch from this company to go to this company. It was choosing like, what are the characteristics of a customer that is going to be bought into our strategy, that's going to be excited about implementing it, that's not going to give us pushback in every single time. Like, what is that company that's going to invest appropriately, that's going to give it enough time, that's going to execute consistently. Like, what does that company look like? And so I think the option is you you got an opportunity to execute and you got an opportunity to like potentially challenge whether or not the people that you're working with are the right people. Like if you're getting resistance and you haven't even started yet, like that's an issue. The second thing I want to talk about, which is I think was an underlying thing is you said you have a a direct to consumer company right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Talk to me about why you don't just try and invest your time to grow that. Mm-hmm. Why am I fucking around with this B2B company that doesn't want to work? I'm going to build my own company instead. Very much in line to what you said previously to one of the guys who's 24 year, years old trying to build his career path. I need money, right? I have a livelihood. I have my own expenses. And the route I'm taking with the e-commerce brand is different. I'm not trying to build a PPC brand. It's more so a community brand. It's called Defiant Regime. We share defined stories around the world. So for example, instead of putting five, 10 grand into a paid ad campaign, I'm doing a launch party in Toronto next month, going that route, putting money to guerrilla marketing. I want to grow a community who's loyal fans and it's just taking a longer route. I don't want to go too much into it, but COVID messed up my whole supply chain, not willing to risk the product launch towards at the quality I want. That's why. And then brands are hitting me up, like, hey, can you help us with our brand? That's where this payroll company came in. Got it. Right. And then I'm like, why not? Right. So now I'm running with it last year. Got it. Based on my read so far that the, this like B2B stint is a bridge for you. 
right? It's like helping you create the space and the time to do what you actually want to do, which I think is like build this community and build this direct to consumer company. Yeah. Or you sort of just, you're not sure yet. It's kind of both. Like that is my passion right there mm-hmm. is this and right. This defined regime brand I want to build. But yeah, when it comes to the B2B software space, I really enjoy it. I enjoy the long funnels. Yeah. I enjoy prices. I, I enjoy wanting to go in this route too. And like previous conversations, there's a lot of money here in B2B. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's the role too. But yeah. yeah I mean, like you just, uh, you can't get people to, to do stuff that they don't, aren't going to do, which is the, the thing that's challenging me right now. And yeah, like the second point you made, right. Is find better clients. I've heard you say that the past couple episodes. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah. Right. You know, that, that, that is the route to go. And that's the route I do want to go. Right. But at the same time, I'm at a stage in my career where I can't be stingy. Right. If this opportunity came, I want to make it work mm-hmm. the best of my ability right now. I've certainly been there. Yeah. And so I, I would be at the best of your ability trying to figure out how to get that to work. But I'd also be at the best of your ability trying to figure out how to hone in on how am I going to get better customers? The thing that uh, I figured out is that if you're able to drive enough demand, then you don't need to take on shitty customers at some point. So it's like how it's a supply and demand thing, right? If you only have one company that wants to work with you, you got to work with them, right? If you got 20 that want to work with you, but you can only take on three, then you can hand select who are the best three. And so I'd be trying the, the, uh, the light bulb switch when I was at like around your stage that went off for me is I said, huh. All the advice I'm giving these companies about how to drive demand for them, I need to do for myself. Right. Mm-hmm. So, how, so how are you creating the podcast? How are you architecting the events? You're doing some of these things for the direct consumer brand, but sort of like drinking your own champagne, whatever you want to call it, like doing the things that you're giving the advice for is a great way to attract customers that want to do it too. You make an absolute great point right there, right? Like I've been posting on LinkedIn the past month you know, the whole nine yards what we're doing right now. That's what I'm trying to like I said, lead with action, right? Like I once heard, if you want someone to walk in a dark tunnel with you, it's easier for you to take the first step. Right. And that's what you've been doing where we find labs clearly. So that's what I would do too. Mm-hmm. I'll let you weeks. All right, goes. Give that a shot, man. Let me know. And I'd, I'd also be trying to figure out like, is there, we can talk about it maybe the next time, but like, I want to go into more detail on the, direct to consumer thing and is there a way to create an unlock where it can be your you can do the whole you can have that be the whole thing right like what's the gross margin profile what is how much is it costing us to acquire a customer how are we acquiring customers is there a way to get some type of growth loop i'd just be interested in exploring that with you because i feel like that um could be a more attractive path amazing amazing chris let me come back next time and while this conversation, I do have to get going right now. Yeah, yeah. Bye. Enjoy your dinner. Good to see you, Manny. Likewise, Chris. Take Thanks. care. All right. You've tackled uh, questions like this before, but Megan Ganser is driving and she really wants your take on this. Um, this is top of mind for her. So she wants to hear your best questions to ask customers for qualitative research besides the obvious. And so she she'd love to hear your take on this. I'm going to exclude the level of like the buyer research, which you point pointed out, like, how did you hear about us? Where do you research? Where do you get information? Who do you listen to? Like, let's exclude that stuff for right now. Mm -hmm. And 
the thing that is different than for me than I think is most people is that I'm getting insights all the time, which then inform what questions I ask. So let me like break this down for you. When I was 2014, I had a Word document that I would go in and I would go in with my little little notepad and pencil and I would read off, basically read off questions that were already set up to buyers. And I, where, where those questions started was basically like, what's in it for me or how to something like that. And now what happens is that because I'm in the, I'm in the communities, I'm talking to people all the time. I'm interacting with people. I'm getting questions from you. I'm getting all the insights about what people are struggling with. And then when I'm in a conversation with a CMO, I can ask pointed questions. Well, you know, what's the challenge that you're having with every company I've talked to so far has been challenged with attribution. How's it going for you? What type of model do you use? What tech are you using for it? Why did you choose that way? How many, how much money are you investing in doing that? What gaps you, is it causing? How are you measuring creating demand versus capturing demand? And I could do a, I could rattle off like eight questions like that in a different subject matter or topic because I get the, the insight at the beginning comes to me from other sources so that I just go and give it. I don't think I'm explaining this properly. It's like, instead of sitting up here and trying to make up the questions that are specific to a, that are generic to any buyer, right? The real value is having questions that are specific to your buyer that are with the insight that originates from them. And then you can either validate or dive deeper or understand why, like the qualitative research element, the best things to figure out is why and how, why do you do it that way? How do you do it? Right. And so like, if you understand this is the, like, I'm trying to think of a different example than attribution, like in the medical device company that I worked for, all the practitioners use this technology called CPAP to help people breathe. And they'd be using the same thing for 40 years. And so you go in and ask, like, why do you do it that way? What side effects are there? Like, if this went away, what would you do instead? And you can start to figure out more. I guess that's getting to a couple themes here. If this wasn't there, what would you do instead? Things like that. The real answer is getting the insights from customers so you can for like have a more pointed conversation when you're one on one in qualitative research. So it's almost like having a one to many qualitative research strategy, which is like what we're doing here. I can read the chat. I can do I can do those things. You have a one to many research strategy. You start to get insights. And then once you have the insights, then when you're actually in conversation, you can say, OK, what are the topics that keep coming up? What do I actually want to learn about this and how do I go deeper? That's more of a framework than actual questions because I think it'd be more valuable. The gap that I consistently run into is that companies don't have the stream of insights to begin with. So customer research becomes an activity that we do once a quarter to check the box. And then we never go back and doing it. And at this point, like it's the research, the cost of research, the amount of time that it takes to do research, how you actually do market research. I remember in 2013, I worked for this company called Volk Optical. We wanted to do a survey with customers. We had to hire an agency. We had to buy data. We needed them to use their software to get like 100 responses on a survey. So you can't do it. And there was you can't do it frequently. There's no way to do it in real time. 
It's expensive. You need to hire another firm to do it. Like that's some of the stuff that came with market research in 2013. And all that stuff is gone. You can get insights all the time. You can get them for free. You can get them in public. So I think that it's it's almost like thinking about market research uh, differently. All right. I have two measurement-related questions. And so let me ask a question from Lindsay, who dropped it in the chat, also can't yeah. come on. And then Skylar has a fun one about Pipe and Hero. So she wants to get your take on the best way to measure marketing initiatives. At her current company, they have historically measured on marketing sourced opportunities. Then they've moved on to MQLs and tying that to lead scoring methodology. And they're implementing ABM strategies, intent strategies, etc. All that said, do you feel influenced opportunities would be the best way to measure or MQAs? I know you've been talking about pipe conversions. Uh, would love to get your thoughts on this topic. Woof. This is pretty much the typical software company, what they're doing here, right? They said marketing sourced ops and then to MQLs with lead scoring, which kind of felt like they were going backwards. So I'm, I'm not really sure about that, but that's okay. We can. And then obviously, when your MQL lead scoring model isn't working, what do you do? Go and buy ABM technology. Duh. Like that's what everyone does, even though it's like all you're doing is you're creating a different MQL score. <laughs> <laughs> when you just to make sure everyone's clear on this, when you buy ABM technology and you implement intent data, all you're doing is changing the MQL score. How it's calculated and whether it's at a person or a, an account, and then all it does is you you got the account data and then you just pick a random contact. So the way to best look at this is not marketing sourced ops versus sales source ops. It creates guaranteed friction between these two departments. What you want to look at is how is the buyer entering our pipeline through major sources that we call pipeline sources that capture demand. Your website, ABM intent data driven outbound, events, partner, you're not going to have that many. It's going to be somewhere between probably three and seven. For big companies, you're going to have big buckets of where pipeline actually comes from. And... From a marketing standpoint, what the marketing team is driving to do is creating demand across all the different sources. Step one, right? Most marketing teams do not do that step because they're too focused on capturing demand. It totally messes up the entire demand system because then you got partner, you got partners that aren't, they're just capturing demand. There's no way your partners are creating demand. They're just capturing it. You got your sales team that's pretty much built to only capture demand based on how buyers buy today and you got field marketing events to capture demand, something's gotta be creating it. So you gotta have your marketing team creating demand. And then you, I want like, if your marketing team's creating a lot of demand, what's the thing that's gonna happen? The amount of people that come to your website and say, hey, I wanna buy your stuff now should go through the roof. And when that happens, what, then you know your marketing's working and you should be able to defend the entire budget against just that pipeline and revenue created alone. And then everything else is just extra. The reason that I do not recommend influenced revenue as a marketing metric is because it's totally flawed and relies on attribution. So anything that doesn't get measured by attribution is not going to get counted in an influenced revenue model. So things like publishing a podcast 290 times that we've done so far would get zero credit and attribution. 
posting on LinkedIn would get zero credit and attribution. Comment, spending 15 minutes per day commenting on other people's posts and things like that on LinkedIn, zero. Running non-direct response Facebook ads and Instagram ads that crush for companies that we do would get zero attribution credit. It boxes you in to just capturing demand, right? So if you want to use influence revenue, that's cool, but you're basically going to restrict yourself to only doing one part of the demand cycle. And it's the one part that every other part of the company is working on too. Your sales team is capturing demand. Your partners, everyone's capturing demand. Why? Like the only thing that marketing can do, not the only thing, but the most important thing that marketing can do across all of it is create the demand in the first place. So that would be my recommendation would be a score on what we call website hero pipeline. How much pipeline have you generated through your website that gets to a stage that your sales team wins at greater than 25% trailing six months? which is typically stage two or stage three, depending on your sales process and qualification methods and things like that. And then you have a metric that marketing is totally aligned with sales. We know that if sales is going to close a million dollars in revenue and we're going to, we need to win them and we win them historically at 25%, then we're going to have to put 4 million in pipe at a balanced, consistent ACV in there in order to have a, pretty good shot. And we probably want deeper pipeline coverage in order to hit the number. So you can sort of like back into that by using the the pipe framework. So that's what I would say. If there's a, there's a follow-up, then I'd be happy to answer that. But that's like the, what every software company is doing right now. And the challenge is that like, the issue is that you're not creating demand. It's like, it's as simple as that. Every piece of technology and every tactic that gets implemented because of how you measure marketing is only focused on capturing demand. Awesome. Skylar has a good one. I want to bring him on live. It's kind of a continuation of the hero thread that we're on. Skylar, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. It's pretty much along the same lines. I've been thinking about this a lot lately and I was watching um, uh, Sydney and Cassie talk about some second growth. I think it was last Wednesday and was thinking about pipe and how I think you guys are trying to make headway on it. Like how, how do we begin to apply this to PLG companies? And I want to know if you had any, uh, if, if, if he hasn't made any headway on that or, or like where you're even beginning to like hypothesize about, you know, at what point does it start? Right. Like, are, are there st- like, how do you map the stages say to something like a journey from free trial to paid to even like um, ascension to proliferating throughout yeah. the entire company or something like that beyond a team? Yeah. It's kind of the key factor in the way that this specific model operates in conjunction with other go-to-market strategies like outbound or partner in the pipe strategy it's all focused around buyers declaring intent to you to buy so it's like what do you need to do in marketing and the product for the buyer to say i want to buy your stuff now right so in a sales-led motion, that's pretty simple. They're going to go to the website. They can't get into the product. They're just going to be like, okay, like I want to buy your stuff now. And they're going to tell you. In a PLG motion, you could have the exact same company, but then you add the PLG motion. And a lot of buyers, what our data is showing, greater than 90% of buyers will take the path of least resistance. So if you put start a free trial or get a demo, more than 90% are going to click start a free trial. So you're going to divert all that traffic away, and then they're going to go into a free trial. From there... The product needs to actually create something that drives enough intent for someone to declare intent to want to buy or to just self-serve and buy, right? So there's basically two different ways. But the key thing is that 
in almost all PLG instances, it revolves around driving an outbound motion because it's the same thing about get an MQL score or create an MQA or now create a PQL, whatever that metric is, so that we can keep doing outbound sales, right? The difference is that when you focus on educating the customer so they buy independently, they do the buying process independently, they go and talk to colleagues, they get the budget, they get everyone on board, they talk to peers, they validate decisions, da, 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 da. and then they come to you, what happens? Like more people buy, they buy at a way higher rate, they're ha typically happier, more qualified customers, it's better sales productivity. And so it's shifting the focus of marketing to have the market come to you, not to s create data for you to go to the market. So to answer your question directly, like that's the philosophical part of this process, but we're in the process of building a PLG product right now. So we're going to start to roll this out and test what it looks like for us. But the key thing is that like our strategy is focused on helping people buy so that they come to us to buy, not unsolicited calling to get people to buy. So that's the the core gap that I see in most PLG companies is that like they're they're not waiting for someone to say, hey, I want to buy. They're just calling a bunch of people that are in the product. We'd love to hear if you've seen other things differently or what you're thinking about it. I mean, beyond beyond like say running some sort of say advertising or doing stuff or people promoting email affiliate wise, uh, influencer wise on say YouTube or something like that for take like productivity software or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I haven't seen it, you know, much beyond that. But even then, it seems like there's still a lot they could do from an education standpoint to educate people on whether or not like this is the product that you even want to get into a free trial and having All that emotion also. Yeah like, yeah, like accurately figure out like, is this the right product for me, even though it's free trial versus getting You're there? So right on. You're so yeah. right on here. Um, there was like a funny anecdote there. I had a friend the other day who was asking me, this was for a free product, right? The tool is free. And we went through probably... 12 different messages over the course of three or four days talking about a product. And I recorded him like a 15 minute loom video demoing how it worked, right? Just for him to figure out whether or not he was going to move to this product and it was free, but it's not really free when you think about it. he's still got to migrate his data over. So there's still a cost, right? I was thinking, you know, that's how it works for a, for a free PLG product. Like imagine like when they're paid, right? Like how much like goes on in dark social and how much really goes into where they had failed to educate Mm -hmm. what the process was going to be like, was it going to be able to do X, Y, Z that these, that where he was coming from was able to do and, and et cetera. So yeah. the thing that I've, I've worked with enough PLG companies, I talked to enough people, like they continue to claim that the motion is better. And I agree, allowing people to get into the product is better, but the entire system is built just like the MQL model. And so when you're, when you're in a PLG company, like, and you're running demand, right, whatever they want to, whatever they want to call it. Typically, there's like demand that's focused on getting people into the product acquisition. And there's a different team, the growth team that's focused on moving you from acquisition to PQL, which is basically like the product version of an email nurture, you know what I mean? So you got all of these different people. And then the core engine, there's no demand being created. That's why like nobody knows what the difference between monday.com and ClickUp and all those things. Nobody's creating demand. Nobody's differentiated at all. It's just all capturing the demand. So nobody's educated on the products. Someone searched productivity software or project management software, and they all battle it out $50 a click for a $7 a month customer. You know what I mean? The mindset on that 
was we get super high valuations. People are investing in PLG. Our company just got, you know, whatever, 300 million at a trillion dollar valuation or something like that. Let's pump a million dollars a month into Google. Who cares? That's what people have been thinking for the past two years. That thinking's over, right? <laughs> that thinking is over. And so I'm, I am pumped to see PLG companies get forced to have sound business fundamentals, especially more early stage ones that have raised a lot of money, sound business fundamentals and get forced to actually create demand for their business. Cause it's just been a, uh, it's just been a game of monopoly money for the past couple of years. Yeah. Agreed. hundred percent. Cool. Great chat, man. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks. Anyway. Thanks, Skylar. All right. That taps us out for questions tonight, but you didn't mention at the top of the show, you want to plug your event with G on Thursday. So people know oh, uh, yeah, what to expect. And I'll, I'll drop the, the link to register. Um, what should people expect again? Yeah, we're well. We have a demand gen expert series <laughs> on Thursday. A specific topic, I know. I know. Twelve Eastern. I don't think we have a specific topic locked in, but who doesn't love Gatano? Yes, and we got uh, the the man, the myth, the legend, Gatano Denardi is going to be back on Thursday, which is June second, twelve p.m. Eastern, nine a.m. Pacific. There's also be a time that's friendly for the UK and mm -hmm. the MIA. There's a registration link in the in the show notes. A couple of the things that I've been super interested in from Gatano recently that I think will bring a lot of value to people. The first one is the guy works in direct to consumer now. Yep. And when you're in, when you move from, you know, entrenched category, you know, competitive cloud VoIP system, B2B to direct to consumer, you think about marketing way differently. So the things that Katana we're talking about now, influencer marketing, creating demand, running paid social, things like that. I'm very interested to see and learn more about how that stuff has changed because that's a lot of what I learned in the mid 2010s when I was in direct consumer. And I'm also interested in if or how his perspective has changed about SEO. Mm -hmm. Right. We talked with uh with Rand Fishkin a couple of weeks ago and his position on SEO has changed quite a bit. So it's just and I like people don't realize that I loved SEO in 2014 and 15. I loved it, right? Um, and so we got a lot of people that are now that used to be pro SEO that are now starting to focus on different things like dark social and content and create demand. So generally, I think it'll be a great event. Katano is awesome. So if you'd like to sign up, we'd love to have you there. Thanks for all. Thanks for everyone for being here. I love doing this and uh, look forward to seeing you next week. Have a great week, everyone. See you next Tuesday. Hey everyone, really appreciate you tuning into this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. And I just wanted to take a second to say to all of the listeners out there, we just crossed over 40,000 listeners across the world to this podcast. And so super grateful and super happy that for all of you, really appreciate you tuning in, attending the live events, engaging on the LinkedIn content, and now watching us get started up and engaging on YouTube and TikTok. And so Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you. And if you haven't already, if you've gotten value from the podcast, I would really appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcasts in the review section of this podcast and leave a quick review or a rating. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you very much. And we'll see you for the next episode.